Hello, and welcome to The 5 by your quadra-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Jose throws parties and pursues romance in Obsession, Aaron tries to avoid losing his head in Alice's garden, Justin attracts artisans and scholars to his palazzo in The Princess of Florence, and I work to prevent the void form from taking over space in Voidfall. But first, Ruel is tasked with rebuilding a city after the Great Fire of 1889 in Rebuilding Seattle. The Great Fire of 1889 has ravaged the city of Seattle, Washington, leaving its charred remains in the Pacific Northwest. You and your rival city planners manage resources to construct buildings and landmarks while dealing with the city's growing population. Whose neighborhood will have the best amenities and the highest quality of living? And who will rebuild Seattle better than ever? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. On the table is Rebuilding Seattle, a game by Quinn Brander. Rebuilding Seattle was published in 2023 by WizKids, who sent me a review copy. In Rebuilding Seattle, 1-5 players take on the roles of city planners intent on bringing back the city of Seattle after the devastating fire. On your turn, take one action during the build phase, construct a building or landmark in your neighborhood, add a suburb to expand your neighborhood, enact a law, or activate an event. Buildings and landmarks are polyominal tiles that go onto your neighborhood and suburbs, which are larger rectangular tiles with mountains, trees, and oceans. Laws are unique actions on each player's board. Events can improve your neighborhoods, decrease your population, or earn you points of money based on the quality of your amenities. Once the sixth and final event is activated, the build phase is over. During the profit phase, players gain money based on their bank tiles and any ongoing building bonuses. A cleanup phase is performed, then the next round begins with a population increase. After three rounds, the player with the most points wins. I'm a big fan of polyominal tile laying games, but for some reason Rebuilding Seattle flew under my radar. When it finally hit the table, I immediately fell for its fantastic blend of tile laying and economic resource management. Normally, I think of tile laying games as fun and relaxing affairs. You build your countryside or your city simply by grabbing the tiles you need, never having to worry about how you're going to scrape up the money to pay for those tiles. In Rebuilding Seattle, all of those beautiful buildings ain't going to pay for themselves, and as your neighborhood gains more prestige through its amenities, the greater the desire people have to live there. It's this balancing act that drives the game. How do you make enough money to construct buildings in your burgeoning district while managing the growing numbers of people that live there? There are three main ways to earn money. First, activating certain events will include a cash bonus for the active player. Second, some buildings include an ongoing money bonus during the profit phase. Finally, each player board has unique laws, one of which will be a gain money action. I really appreciated how events worked in the game. Each one gets you closer to the end of the current round, and you're always trying to stretch things out in order to earn the most money based on the quality of your neighborhood. While three of the events work basically the same for the three different amenities, entertainment, shopping, and restaurants, the other three are ways to expand your neighborhood through discounted suburb tiles, decreasing population based on your university icons, and earning money based on uncovered terrain icons on your suburbs. The gameplay is solid with streamlined turns. I've always loved games where you take one action on your turn. Nothing more, nothing less. Of course, in Rebuilding Seattle, you're especially concerned with every action your opponents take. Namely, are they going to trigger an event before you're completely ready for it? For example, you're making a run on entertainment buildings in your neighborhood, but you're also trying to lower your population. You'll be sweating every time your opponent activates an event. If it's too early and your population is too high, then you won't score full value for that event. Yes, you'll probably get something, but you're subtracting the difference between your amenity and your population. 
This means that the eight point bonus or the extra eight dollars of cash might be worth only two points or two bucks if an opponent triggers an event before you can lower your population or increase the amenities in your neighborhood. After each round of building, you can earn money based on any ongoing bonuses during the profit phase. There's that cash. There's a rhythm to the game that I greatly enjoyed. After you start putting together your engine and figuring out the direction of your growing neighborhood, you experience the first population surge and find yourself back at square one. Three rounds is the perfect timing for the game. You'll have just enough time to benefit from your ongoing bonuses, and the game never outstays its welcome. Rebuilding Seattle was an insta-hit when it hit the tabletop in my home. The game feels familiar with its tile lane, but adds a nice bit of resource management. We enjoyed reconstructing the city, and I'm sure native Seattle residents will appreciate the history built into its theme. In fact, give me more games like Rebuilding Seattle. The game's complexity isn't bogged down by pages and pages of rules, examples, and exceptions to the rules. The rulebook itself is only 8 quick pages, and thanks to its simple turn structure, the game's complexity comes through in the best way possible, through the actual play. There's also a solo variant that uses a solo deck of cards to simulate a second opponent. It's not as robust as other solo modes, but I'm grateful for the chance to play this game by myself. Rebuilding Seattle was one of the best games I played in 2023. Don't let it fly under your radar for too long either. Thanks to WizKids for the copy of Rebuilding Seattle. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on social media at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Ah, good. Welcome, listeners. For today, I hope you brought your fanciest pants, because we're about to play one of the fanciest games I own. Today, we're going to be talking about Obsession. Obsession is a game for one to four heads of states, art and designed by Dan Halligan, and published by Cayenta Games. I really hope I said that right. In Obsession, you run a Victorian family as you try to reclaim wealth and reputation that haven't been doing so well in the past couple years. You're going to be doing this by upgrading your estate, trying to court the most eligible family in the Derbyshire, the Fairchilds, and holding gatherings where you can invite everyone to see how awesome you really are. I'm going to give you a quick overview of the game. Again, this isn't a comprehensive rules thing. On your turn, what you're basically going to do is you're going to choose one of the amenities that's in your estate, which are these tiles, to hold an event which will allow you to play guest cards or family cards to attend this event. And of course, you have a staff that you have to manage, which are worker meeples, that have to be present at the event either for the location or certain guests are require having certain workers. Now, each guest that you invite and each activity that you host will give you some sort of reward like money, reputation, or access to more guests. And then at the end of each season, you're going to compare estates to see which estate the Fairchilds like the most, which will give you a chance to host them for the season, which is an extra special card that you can play over the course of the round. And then after a set amount of rounds, the game is going to end and you're going to score points based on your estate, the types of guests in your hand, and the different objectives that you're going to get over the course of the game. Like I said, there's a little bit more to this game. But just so that you know, it's basically a mixture of worker placement and resource and hand management. Maybe a little bit of deck building sprinkled in, just just the smidge. Now I'm going to say this. Obsession rocketed to the top of my favorite games just as soon as I played it. The game has always had a positive buzz, and I'm going to be adding to that. This game ticks a lot of boxes for me. 
There is a lot of paths to victory, different ways you can score points, but every action doesn't feel the same, so your actions actually do feel like they matter. There's a cohesiveness between the visual design of the game and the mechanical aspects of the game, which go hand in hand. You have to manage your house. You have to make sure that you have the right workers for the guests that you have in your hand, which could change depending on the game based on the card draw. Some of the guests that you have will help you rise in prominence, and those are the ones you want to keep around, but there's also people that you don't want to associate with because they may be scandalous in one, some sort of way, or they may be new, new money, which we don't want to associate with. We're old money. The game does have asymmetrical families that give you a very specific advantage at the start of the game, which doesn't feel as important as the game progresses, but is very important at the beginning to help you get on your way. Everything in this game makes sense thematically once you start tying the mechanics to the theme. And I, I love that. That makes everything so much easier to remember. It makes the game so much more fun to play. Silly accents are abound whenever you start announcing which guests have arrived into your state. Now, not every game is perfect, I have to admit. And even this game is not perfect. There's a few quibbles. A few quibbles. First thing I want to mention is the rulebook. Now, the rulebook is good, but it is dense. The first time I read it, I may have fallen asleep one or five times, and it was kind of hard to get through initially. But once I did get through the rulebook and saw a video and kind of understood how the game worked, the rulebook is actually a really good reference. The only other negative I can't really justify is the art. I did say that the visual design is really good, and it is, but the art... I mean, there's art on the box, and there's art on the board, and there's pictures of people in the cards, but that's it. The game has no real, like, table presence. Every time I've played the game, people look at it, and they like the box art, but when they see the game being played, it's super dry and kind of boring looking. This game is much more function over form, and that's not a deal breaker for me. I kind of like that. It makes things easier for me to understand at a glance, but the game is super dry looking. Now, the last thing is that despite this being a Euro, there is some randomness in the game, and that's just going to be due to having a deck of cards that everyone's going to be drawing from and a random market that comes out through. You can't control what comes out of the market. You can kind of have some tools to mitigate the card draw, but there is an element of randomness to this game that you will not always be able to control. I kind of like that. I like games that are a little bit more tactical than strategic. But that doesn't mean that this game doesn't reward forward thinking. And that's it. That's Obsession in a nutshell. Now, I do want to say that I just focused on the base game. There are expansions that have addressed some of the issues that I did mention. There are expansions to add to the player accounts, and they're definitely worth checking out. Now, I'm Lord Fancy Pants. I mean, Jose. You can find me on X at SirBezworth1 or on Instagram at SirBezworth. Come on by, say hi, and let's have a... <laughs> that was my fancy laugh. The Royal Gardeners need some help ensuring the Queen's garden requirements are met. And I highly doubt I need to remind anyone what the price for imperfection is. Hey, I'm Aaron, and I'll be sharing my thoughts about Alice's Garden, a 1-4 player polyamino tile placement game designed by Iquan Kwan, illustrated by Eugenia Smolenseva. Alice's Garden was published by Goliath and Red Cat Games. For the rest of this audio review, I'm going to be referring to the polyamino pieces as tetraminos. 
just because it feels good to say Tetramino. I just like saying Tetramino. Alice's Garden is a competitive game where players are going to try to score the most points in their garden by doing things the queen wants to see, which essentially involves where they're placing mushrooms, where they're placing the uh, card guards, if you will, where the chess pieces go, groups of roses, and where they have trees and the spaces between them. The garden dimensions are about eight squares wide and six squares long. Uh, each board is double-sided. The center two squares have a column that is uh, checker slash chessboard style all the way down from top to bottom on the most basic side. On the back side, there is a more advanced version of the garden where the uh, checkerboarded pieces are more spread out throughout the entire garden. In addition to the four player boards, there are 95 actual tile pieces. I'm not sure how many of each, but there are 95 of them, six different types. So there's six feltish bags that are all very nicely labeled on both sides that will house each individual Tetramino piece. Once you've established which player is going first, that player would take one of five bags. The bag that houses these single square pieces are a bonus. I'll explain in just a moment. But of the five Tetramino style pieces, a player on their turn would reach into that bag and take out enough pieces for every player. This is largely true with one exception, which would be the very first turn. The very first turn, the player who goes first would take one of the five bags and pull out one more piece than the number of players that are playing. But for the most part, you pull out a number of pieces for the players playing. During that round, everybody is essentially taking one of the tiles that was removed from the bag that the active player chose to remove tiles from. The player who selected the tiles from the bag would go first and everybody else would follow. In turn order, of course, we live in a society. There's always going to be one tile remaining each round. The artwork that's going to comprise uh, the four units making up each Tetramino are going to be comprised of mushrooms, the guards that are like playing cards, the chess pieces, a single rose, and a tree. Sometimes tiles will have two roses, maybe two mushrooms, uh, maybe two chess pieces. You can have, I think, up to two of certain elements, but I don't think more than, than two will appear on one particular tile. So the mushrooms score in terms of columns. So every column that has at least two mushrooms will score you eight victory points. The chess pieces score five points apiece if they happen to be placed on a checkerboard piece in the garden. The guards don't score you any points, but when a guard is placed adjacent to a single guard or a group of guards, they will allow you to take one single tile out of the bag that has one individual square unit, which is placed to the side and then placed onto your board right before final scoring, which has a bit of a penalty with it. Whereas if you have too many of those to place on your board at the end, you'll lose five points for extra bonuses while you also can lose five points for having empty spaces. Trees essentially score in rows, so trees will score for every tile type that's not a tree in between two trees in a row, and you also score the trees. So if you have four different tiles in between two trees in an individual row, you would score four points plus two points for each tree. And roses will score uh, in groups. So one rose is one point, two is four, three is nine, four is 16, five. You guessed it, 25 points. I hope you guessed it. Well, if you didn't, that's fine too. The end of the game is essentially triggered once a player cannot select or fit a tile that is from the small pool from the selected bag. I played this game solo and I played this game with other people and I enjoyed all the plays I had with it. I thought it was pretty light, pretty fun, but just enough strategy 
soon enough, just to sort of get things going. I feel like if you're into polyamino games, definitely worth a shot. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. Pretty simple to teach. If you have a whole lot of polyamino games, this one might not stand out a whole lot. If you're looking for something a little bit light, um, that's not wildly different. I don't think Alice in Wonderland is necessarily a unique theme. If you're okay with all those things, I feel like Alice's Garden is something that you could feel comfortable adding to your collection. Anyway, that's going to do it for me. I'm Aaron from GameWithDeuce.com, representing the 5 by podcast. Thank you for listening. Take care, stay safe, and be blessed. Hey folks, Justin Bell here with the 5 by From time to time, I play an older game's reprint, or maybe a second edition, and stand up from the table whining in the same silly way. How the beep have I not played this game before now? Have you heard of The Princes of Florence? I certainly hadn't. The game was originally released in the year 2000. Yes, there really are games that are more than 20 years old. Designed by Wolfgang Kramer, Richard Ulrich, and Jens Christopher Ulrich. WizKids provided me with a review copy of the new reprint, and boy, is it something. Talk about design pedigree. Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich also co-designed El Grande, an auction and area control classic from 1995 that we covered all the way back in episode 84. Kramer regularly co-designs games with Michael Kiesling, the German designer of a little-known game called Azul? (laughs) Okay, I'm kidding. I think they sell Azul at Target by now. So, the design pedigree here with The Princes of Florence is strong, and so is the gameplay. The Princes of Florence is an auction game, played over seven rounds. Players take on the roles of leaders of individual provinces that need to be built out from a palazzo situated in the bottom left-hand corner of each person's player board. Players begin the game with 3,500 florin. For this review, though, let's just go with cash money to bid on landscapes and build structures that will help fill the area outside the palazzo. Other auction items include builders, which help a player save cash on structures later, and prestige cards, which contribute to endgame scoring. So far, standard stuff, right? But it gets better. The active player gets to pick one of the seven auction items to start a round of bidding. Bidding always begins at $200, and bidding is incremental, meaning that the next bid has to be exactly $100 higher. If you pass, you are out of the bidding for that item. And if you win, that's the only item you can take for this round's auctions. Often, you'll see a player start an auction just to get another player out of the way. or Players might try to upbid an item they don't really want to get an opponent to overspend. Sometimes, a player will bid $200 on an item that they think no one else wants, just to test the market. Bidding is a blast in The Princess of Florence, especially at five players, the game's max player count. Yelling, screaming, cursing, it's all a part of the fun. After the auction, each player takes two actions back-to-back. The player board tableau is a grid of a player's province. These spots can be filled with various buildings from a market. In this way, The Princes of Florence is first an auction game, then it becomes a bit of a polyomino, tile-laying game, with tetrisy shapes that have to align with certain rules, like no overlap, buildings can't be adjacent to other buildings, etc. So, some of your actions will be used to buy buildings and smaller tiles called freedoms, that will add value to the works you'll be building later. Other actions 
will be used to buy bonus cards. The big action in The Princess of Florence is complete a work. During setup, players are dealt and then keep three character cards. These characters will be played from hand into your play area to represent a visiting scholar, such as a mathematician or a dramatist. These people all want to complete work at your palazzo, but only if they are inspired, quote-unquote, by various items that are eventually built into your province. Religious freedom, a university building, forests or parks, maybe. Aligning the guest's work to the layout of your province triggers a work value. Then players need to make a big decision. That work value can be split into a mix of cash and victory points. Here's the breakdown. You can take $100 for every point of work value. Or you could take a victory point for every two points of work value. Now this moment of tension is maybe the best part of this game. You will always need cash. If the work value is something like 20, you could take $2,000 in cash, which is 100 for every point of work value. Or you could take 10 victory points, one victory point for every two points of work value. But you could go splitsies. Maybe you'll take 800 bucks in cash, and then with the remaining 12 of work value points, you could take six victory points. I love watching players make that big decision. And this is why we play games, right? Interesting decisions, fun turns, and a snappy playtime with beautiful production. Did I mention the reprint features fantastic new artwork from Vincent Dutre? If you like tableau builders, auction games, and polyomino experiences, The Princes of Florence is a home run. Pick up a copy at your local gaming store or whip out the 23-year-old version you might have sitting in your basement. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. At first glance, Voidfall and its gigantic galactic box seems very daunting. The type of 4X space game that will take you an entire day to play. The box is ginormous, there's layers upon layers of boards, ships, sector tiles, tokens, corruption markers, decks of cards, and rulebooks, all encased in a multi-layer cake of plastic inserts. But Voidfall, with all its rules and medium-ish heavy complexity, at its core is a Euro engine builder, with some substantial time investment from setup learning the rules and playing the actual game, Voidfall will offer an epic experience in a couple of hours, with each game unique from the last, a game you'll be asking yourself, when can we play again? Voidfall, a game published in 2023 by Mindclash Games, designed by Nigel Buckle and David Terzi, with artwork by Ian O'Toole, plays 1-4 to players in about 90-240 to minutes, once you actually start playing. Setup can take quite some time, and you need a really big table to play it. It's a table hog. The game is set in space, and the great houses are trying to purge galactic corruption and prevent the Voidborn from manifesting. The game offers competitive, cooperative, and solo mode, with 20 scenarios and 50-plus map setups, and 14 asymmetric factions. Players are leaders of the great houses, where actions from a set number of focus cards can be played each round, depending on the scenario. 
The different houses slightly alter your first hand of cards, but after the first cycle, your whole hand of cards are available for you to choose from. The game recommends you first play the tutorial to get a feel for the game and to introduce you to all the icons, of which saying there are plenty is an understatement. The game is very, very icon-heavy. It's not confusing per se, but it'll take a player a game or two to familiarize yourself with what they all mean. If not, there's a glossary rulebook included in the game, and you can also download the icon reference sheets from the Mind Clash website. The game begins with the sector tiles in the middle of the table, complete with home sectors, your corvette fleets, and any enemy corruption, and other things related to the Voidborn. Sectors have population dice on them and spaces for guild tokens and installation tokens. Guild tokens help you produce resources, and installation tokens are for defense, star bases, and shipyards. Players also have their own house board, which tracks their technologies, civilization tracks, which unlock potential for technology upgrades, and society tracks, which determines how many ships you can put out onto the board. Players also get this smaller board, which tracks production and resource totals, with many different dials. Very handy in this game. The heart of the game is your nine focus cards. On your turn, you choose one of your focus cards, which contains three printed actions on it, of which you choose two. Once your turn is done, that focus card is not available to you until the next cycle. Actions may have a resource cost, and multiple actions may be paired with different actions based on the focus card. So choosing how you want to play your cards and in which order is vitally important in order to maximize your turn. This kind of decision-making, a choose-your-own-adventure of sorts, is what I most enjoy about this game. As the cycle progresses, your choices become more limited as you have less focus cards to choose from. Lastly, with any type of space game, there's movement and combat. Both are pretty straightforward. Battles just calculate defense and ship powers, and then attacks are made back and forth until there are no more hit points to dole out, and the winner gets a glory token. Whenever you invade another sector, you gain points from all the glory tokens in your possession. There's also many different ways to score, from agenda cards that you acquire through actions to moving up on your civilization tracks. Agenda cards compound with each cycle, so if you can score one early, it'll score each time. The game has so many pathways to victory, and each game will be different than the last. But amid all this gameplay and strengthening your house civilization, the void form strengthens too and is ready to attack your house if there's corruption in it. When I wrote my top 10 games that I played for the first time in 2023 on my blog, I kept going back and forth about adding Voidfall to that list. But in all honesty, I've enjoyed each game of it, but I can see how the overwhelming giantness of the game can be a turnoff for some. The icon list alone can be discouraging. But if you have time, and I know that's a big if these days, Voidfall is one that I highly recommend investing your time and energy into. It's a game that I hope to play all throughout the year. And that's Voidfall. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on all the socials as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to the 5 by your monthly source for board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. And check out our website at 5 
If you like what we do and would like to support our work, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 5 games. As always, thank you for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.